we need the infrastructure to run internet that is capable. Everyone should have reliable internet access. It's baffling that we're in today's age and not everyone has reliable internet. We live 50 miles away from Dallas. It's not that long of a stretch. Why are we struggling to have it? That to me is mind boggling. Hello and welcome to Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. This is where leaders, growers, and stakeholders in the corn industry can turn for big picture conversations about the state of the industry and its future. I'm Dusty Weiss, and I'll be introducing your host, Association CEO John Doggett. You can join John every month as he travels the country on a mission to advocate for America's corn farmers. From the fields of the Corn Belt to the D.C. Beltway, we'll make sure that the growers who feed America have a say in the issues that are important to them with key leaders who are shaping the future of agriculture. The poor quality of Internet access in rural America has been an issue for a long time. The lack of reliable broadband access has impacted farms, communities, and the rural economy, and that was before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now that kids in farm country are headed back to school, some virtually and some in person, broadband access is a bigger issue than ever before. So in this episode, we're talking to Elsie Wetzel, a school administrator, teacher, mother, farmer, and Common Ground volunteer, about how they're making it work in these unprecedented times. If you haven't yet, make sure that you're subscribed to this podcast in your favorite app. That way you can take us with you in your truck, your tractor, or on your next trip and never miss an update from John. Also, make sure to follow the NCGA on Twitter, at National Corn, and sign up for the National Corn Growers Association newsletter at ncga.com. And with that, it's time to once again introduce John. John Doggett, the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. John, as hard as it may be to believe in a year where every month seems to last a year, summer's winding down and fall's going to be here soon. Fall is almost here in Northern Virginia. We had a hot, hot summer. It cooled off a little bit. It's been nice to get out and walk in the morning. Hey, you know what? If I could just go beyond walking around a little bit, it sure would be nice if we could just get out and be with other people. Oh, that would be something at this point. I've taken to channeling my energy into uh, turning our back patio into a Wisconsin-style beer garden, complete with now the bistro lights hanging overhead and uh, some speakers built into the wall. So all of my socialization takes place over a campfire right now. Wonderful. I don't know what we're going to do come winter. I'll just build a bigger campfire. <laughs> well, let's hope you don't need a, a big, big fire too soon, Dusty. But you know what? It's It's back to school time in America typically means that the kids are nervous, teachers are eager, and the parents, they're pretty thankful to get their kids out of the house after having them underfoot for the whole summer. But these aren't typical times we're living in. And while the emotions I've just mentioned are still true, I think I'd have to add another one into the mix, and that's apprehension. Because of COVID, school's going to be a lot different this year. Now, some schools, you know, they have kids back to the classroom five days a week. Some It's all virtual. Some are doing a hybrid of the two, but they're all going to be conducting their classroom business a little different this year in an effort to keep everyone safe. And that's what's really important. We're talking about our kids. We're talking about our society. We've got to keep people safe. So kids, teachers, and administrators, they're going to be in masks. They're hopefully going to be socially distancing from one another, though I have a four-year-old granddaughter and she doesn't quite get social distancing. 
So these kids are going to be leaning on technology like never, ever before. And as we have seen so many times during this pandemic, we really see another one of those gulfs between rural America and urban and suburban America. And the problem is broadband availability in rural America. And it's been around for a long time, but boy, people certainly are understanding it a whole lot better now. It's a lingering problem. It holds farms and in the towns that support them back, you know, and that story's been well covered. But the problem of broadband access in small towns, it still continues, and it's still very much affecting how kids in rural America learn. So today's conversation is gonna be a different take on the same problem. Uh, and I'm excited about this. I'm, I'm just delighted to have uh, Elsie Weitzel on our podcast today. Elsie's a, she's a mom, she's a school administrator, she's a farmer, she's a common ground volunteer, she's from Texas, and she knows that the problem of broadband access is difficult across the country. And in some places in rural America, it's more difficult than others. So Elsie, as the son, the father, and the husband of educators, it's an honor to have you on the program. Well, thank you, John. I appreciate that. So Elsie, tell us about you and tell us about your family. Tell us about your farm. Um, I am Elsie Wetzel, like John said, and I live in North Texas um, in a small community outside of Dallas. And we are farmers, grain farmers primarily. We farm around 7,000 acres outside of Sherman, Texas, if you're uh, familiar with the Dallas area. We are primarily grain farmers. This year, we had sunflowers for the first time in 10 years. But our primary crop is corn and soybeans. And um, it's my husband and his father that are the farmers in the family. Um, And I support him as the go-getter. Yesterday, I brought him some ice cream on the combine because we are in corn harvest right now. Um, And then I have two sons. Reed is six years old and Ryder, who is seven. And we talked before we started and and your sons are the same age as as my granddaughters. So I I know that you've had some interesting times getting through the pandemic with those kids. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But tell us about your community and tell us about your school and and what is your role at the school? So I teach in a small rural school outside of the Dallas area. It's called Gunner, Texas. It's spelled G-U-N-T-E-R, but we leave the T. We say Our T is silent and gunner, but our touchdowns aren't. Because if you know anything about our community, we are um, state championship football players here in Texas, which is a big deal when you're in the South. And we run about a thousand kids in our school. My role is the ELL coordinator. I work with all of our students who English is not their primary language. And I'm also an assistant principal because when you work in a small school, that's what you do. You do lots of jobs. So I do both those things. And we went with everyone else after spring break. That's when the pandemic hit us. So we went remote during that time. And let me tell you, internet was a fun issue to tackle as both a parent and a school administrator. And you have a four-year-old and a six-year-old at home and trying to deal with that. Yes. And um, yes, I uh, I know I, I gave uh, my daughter a case of duct tape to take care of that problem. <laughs> uh, so how has your community adapted to manage through this pandemic, uh, both at school and in the broader community? Luckily, we are in a area that it has not been hit as hard as, say, if you go 50 miles south, Dallas, which has been almost an epicenter here in Texas. But our own county has not had as many issues with COVID. We have a lot lower numbers. So that's been first a blessing in itself. Um, we took, when we said quarantine, we, we took it seriously and we stayed home. 
as a whole, our community, we, I think in total now we're at seven total COVID cases that we've had in our actual city. So that's been a blessing to us as a school because that allowed us to start back to school in a traditional setting. That's what we're doing right now. We did give every family the option to start remote. So we have about 15% of our families that are in a remote learning situation. And then the other 85% are actually coming to school. In March, it was a whole different situation whenever the, the pandemic hit. We went home and we tried to roll out things as fast as we could so that families had the access that they needed to be able to get on the internet because we had over 100 families that go to school with us that did not have internet access at their homes. So that was an interesting task to overcome whenever, when you're looking at a school picture and and family and community-wise, we believed in the stay-at-home order, one. Two, we spent a lot of time together and bonding with the people who are in our immediate families. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you you mentioned that the figure fifteen percent staying virtual and eighty five percent wanting to have their kids in the school, and uh, that's that's almost exactly the same percentage of the parents who opted one way or another uh, at the school in in Tallahassee, Florida, that my my daughter teaches at. And I heard another teacher the other day say 15 and 85. And so that's a, it's interesting that it seems to follow that. So how's it been raising a family that's very busy with two little boys? How's that been in recent months? A lot of balancing. I became a stay-at-home mom overnight, which is um, not a calling I've had. I love my children, but for both of our sanities, both my husband's and my children's and my own, um, I need to be busy. So that's what I did. I kept us busy doing lots of activities, lots of fun. We did lots of learning at home. One thing I appreciate out of it, it's it's a different relationship I have with my kids, which is kind of crazy to say they're four and six, but it, it brought us closer together. And even with my in-laws, who we see on a daily basis because my husband's job, we live closely um, together because they're both running the farm. It was nice to just have some time to stop because I don't ever do that, to stop and and smell the roses, as you would say, and, and spend that quality time. So I appreciated that a lot with the kids and coming back to school was a rude awakening for them. So we're, we're getting over tears finally today. So how are your kids doing now? They're getting over the tears, but four and six, that my mm-hmm. little bit of, little bit of acting out? It was a little bit of acting out. I'll, I'll never forget it. We were probably a month in to the coronavirus and we had been home for a month, which is abnormal. And my little loves chilies. He loves to go to the restaurant chilies. I don't know why it's his favorite restaurant to go to, but it is. And we were sitting there and he was asking, could we go to the park? And I was like, no, we can't go to the park, but we can do this in the backyard. And we were giving, he's asking me all these options. And finally he was like, I hate the coronavirus. I just want to go to chilies. It was so funny. Oh man, that kid speaks for all of us. Yes. Oh. We, we finally had a re- the restaurant ban lifted. Um, I think we're at 75% still where that's the capacity. So that was the first restaurant we went to. That's that's an abnormal thing to have the kiddos dictate the restaurant, but it's stuck in our minds. So we went to Chili's for our first restaurant venture. Well, good. So what are they doing now that's different than the pre-COVID world besides going to school? I think probably the biggest thing that we've done is we have a pool. We got a dog. That's a big deal. We got a dog during COVID. Um, so they have learned to appreciate taking care of an animal because that was a big thing. We've said, if you get the dog, then you're going to have to help take care of it. So every morning, my little, my oldest brings him out and my little fills up his dog bowl. So adding some of those responsibilities and, you know, giving them as you grow, you have more responsibilities in the family. And that's 
that's one thing they're doing different after COVID. And I, I will just give you a hint. Uh, when they get older, do not let them get dogs when they start high school, because when they, they go to college, guess where the dogs go? So, all right. Elsie, how would you describe your internet service? Spotty at best. So depending on where I am, actually at our farm proper. So my in-laws live on the farm and then we live off the farm a few miles away. They have okay internet. It's pretty decent. Once COVID hit and everybody was on the internet all day, it became very sluggish and not as reliable as it was before. But where we live, we live in a valley um, and lots of trees surround us. So the internet service there is just horrible. Satellite internet you can't get. We're at the very end of the line for broadband internet. And so I mean, if we stream Netflix, there, there, nothing else goes on in the house. Or if I'm working on my computer, there's no doing activities or anything else on the internet. So it's a one person stop shop, if that makes sense. So Elsie, do you have any specific examples where, you know, your ha- family had problems with this service while you're trying to do a lot of different things? So I was continuing working servicing all of my students during that time. And my children also had assignments that were online, primarily online. We couldn't do them at the same time. So we had to take turns for everything. So if I was helping and I I worked with all of our um, Spanish speakers, I wouldn't call myself fluent in Spanish, but I do some communicating. So between working with my translators and myself, I spent a lot of hours helping parents troubleshoot internet issues Meanwhile, my children couldn't really do their assignments. I had alternative assignments that weren't online, but the assignments that their teachers assigned online, I had to set aside time for that. So we basically took turns and it made for long days. That sounds incredibly frustrating. It was very frustrating. There were some days I'm like, we're just not, we're not, we're not going to do it. We're not doing it. So we would have um, no technology days. You know, uh, I've heard a lot of people having to just say, we're going to turn everything off. And uh, it's amazing what that lack of speed does to folks. So Elsie, how does broadband access for you and your community differ from, say, in Dallas? You're not that far away from Dallas. Is there a big difference in in the service, though? There is a large difference. Many of them have fiber optics, which is a lot. It works much better. But even my friends that are in Dallas, I have lots of friends because that's where I was before I met my husband. Um, I lived in Dallas proper, so I still have a large friends group and we're all having kids and have children of um, elementary age. And they had lots of frustrations a lot of times because their school was overloaded and then their internet was overloaded because everyone was home trying to learn and work and it was difficult, but they didn't nearly have the lag that I have. I can remember having some Zooms. I, I don't know you about you guys, but I missed my friend. So we would have Zoom night at like nine o'clock. Um, and I would be the only one that my internet was not working because we had been on it all day long. So I'm trying to do Zooms from my cell phone and get the little bit of signal I had. So it they had better, but it was not as good as it should have been thinking that they live in a large city. You know, we did, uh, we did Corn Congress in July and it worked very, very well, except for we kept having these pauses. And, you know, we had scheduled this and did not realize that we were scheduling it for the same day, uh, July 15th, that everybody was uh, submitting their taxes online. <laughs> and you want to talk about overcrowding the, the internet, we certainly did that day. So we talked a little bit about what your school did. Uh, you went immediately into to shutdown uh, last spring, hard stop, school from home, work from home, stay home. 
you know, any other technologies that you used or any other tricks up your sleeve that you pulled out that were helpful? Because our families, we had about 100 families that didn't have internet service at school, we actually got hotspots for all those families that work off of cell phone technology. And that's what we got for our families. We were not one-to-one in our district. A few grade levels were. So we got all of our internet, uh, all of our iPads and our Chromebooks and asked every family do you, if you need one. And we did a deployment of both hotspots, iPads, and Chromebooks to help our families, which was helpful. But unfortunately, those hotspots, they were run on cell phone service. So if you live, you had to have it in a certain place in your house where you had the best cell phone service and they were only at a 50 megabyte capacity. So if the kids did anything other than schoolwork, they did not have enough capacity to do their actual schoolwork. So we had to stop them from watching videos. We were making lessons and recording ourselves teaching. A lot of our teachers were doing that and they had to stop doing it because our kids could not access it. A lot of our families couldn't because it took up too much megabytes. Elsie, did your district actually have the hotspots on hand or did you have to go out and acquire those special? We had to acquire them. It took us to the after the first two weeks. We, we were a little more preemptive My superintendent is very well connected in the state, and she saw the writing on the wall before spring break. So during spring break, it wasn't much of a break for the administrators. We were doing a lot of trying to figure out what we were going to do, and and that's when we ordered the hotspots prior to all the other school districts. And a lot of other school districts waited about two weeks out, and and it was almost impossible for them to get them. We worked with a company called Kajit to get ours, and they run from a Verizon network. So Elsie, how long have you been teaching? This is my 16th year in education. 16th year. Mm-hmm. So if you had to describe in a couple words, what is it like being an educator in this environment? Frustrating would be one. Frustrating, but it allowed for relationships that we didn't have prior to that. I am on a first name basis with every I have 116 kids on my caseload, I think now, and I'm on a first name basis with their parents. So I appreciated that part of it. So I, the relationships that it built, I did parent nights and parent engagement nights and did those kind of activities pretty often during the school year, but it's a whole different level of relationships when you're towards the end of the epidemic, I would suit up and go into their homes because we were trying to get kids to pass um, courses and they're, you know, they were having internet issues. I couldn't answer it via phone. I went into their houses so that it, it built relationships I didn't have before. So while it was frustrating, it also was rewarding in that aspect. But it, it took a lot of effort on your part and more than a little bit of risk. So thank you for what you've done. You know, I, I have I have hired a lot of hotshot lobbyists in my career, but, you know, I still tell folks that what my wife and my daughter do is a lot more important than that. And uh, I, I know I know the kind of money you make and the hours you put in. And but thank you. Uh, you know, that's that's what's really important to the next next generation. So, Elsie, how's your uh, your mindset heading into this this school year and how is it different from previous years? I have a reputation on campus to be um, Miss Positivity. Sometimes we don't call it Pollyanna, but sometimes they may feel that way because I always try to put a positive spin. And I've had to think myself happy quite often. Like I, I want to get frustrated and be in the moment and say, oh, I just want to give up, Let, pull my hair out. Let's just, why are we still doing this? But honestly, a relationship with God and a little little bit of time in the word gets my head in the right direction. And going and taking a ride on the combine with my husband where nobody can get in touch with me has been also uh, beneficial. But I think that's probably been the biggest 
thing is, is thinking yourself happy. A long, long time ago, I think I was 16 years old, I heard a preacher preach that. And it's been one of my mantras since then. Like, life doesn't always give you lemons, but you get to choose what you make out of it. So that's what I've done with it. And um, encourage teachers. And when you ha- you work with the staff that I work with, you it's it's pretty easy. It's like a family. So we always have each other's backs. But sometimes that's hard. Uh, I'm it part is. of a fellowship group that talks about uh, you fake it until you make it. Mm-hmm. And some days that's all you can do. So some days I, I smile. That's what I tell them. Like I have a smile on the outside. You do not want to see what's inside <laughs> my head. So so what are you hearing from other parents and and their experience with distance learning? You said you you know you are on a first name basis with all of your students' parents. What what are they telling you? And what are the positives? And and obviously there's, there's a lot of negatives. But what are they saying to you? And and how are they dealing with this experience? It's especially depending on which population we're talking about, but the ones who have a second language issue, many of my parents cannot speak English. It has been extremely frustrating because the communication hasn't been there. I try to send everything out in Spanish, but some of my parents can't read Spanish or read English. So that's been a, a, it's been very frustrating and hard for them and overwhelming. And I've told them many times, take a breath, stop. We're just not going to work on this today. We'll come back to it tomorrow. But then they also, I feel like it's been good for them to see what their kids are actually doing in school. And it's been eye-opening for them and to understand their kids' own capabilities and what what they're doing. So I feel like that's been a good thing. And I've had a lot of moms say, oh, I didn't realize my kid could do these things or how great they were at this. And and putting some ownership back on those kids' plates and the parents' plates for that matter, that they're, they're kind of taking a more a more hands-on approach to their kids' education, which has been encouraging to us as educators. So short of developing a a vaccine or waving a magic wand and and having COVID go away, on the the technology front, as a mom, as an educator, as as somebody very involved in common ground and, and doing all those wonderful things, what would be the one or two things that you would do on the technology side that would make your life a whole lot better? We need the infrastructure. Like we need the infrastructure to run internet that is capable to have the amount of population. We talk about feeding the population we have currently on earth and how that's going to become a struggle in the future. We need the infrastructure to be able to have internet. Everyone should have reliable internet access. That to me, it's baffling that we're in today's age and not everyone has reliable internet. We live 50 miles away from Dallas it's not that long of a stretch. Why are we struggling to have it? That to me is mind boggling. What someone somewhere, we need to have one of those acts, internet infrastructure act. It's a vital necessity in our time and age. Everything is on the internet. And now that COVID's happened, it's even become more of that push. So I think that would be the one thing is, is having the reliable internet, no matter where you are. And second help your neighbor. I don't know where we kind of have fallen short on that, but we don't help each other anymore. I've seen that firsthand as, as parents, you kind of close your door and you don't worry about the rest of the world. But while we have to be distant, I feel like it's important that we're putting in our hand and saying, Hey, I'm a part of this fight too. And I'll have your back if you have mine. You know, not having internet access is like not having electricity. And I, I remember my dad used to talk about when we got electricity to the ranch in, in 1947, how it just transformed everything. And, you know, it, and, and a lot of people still uh, in this day and age, in particular, in some of our farmers say, why do we need more Internet access? I think COVID just proved why. Exactly. 
My husband would not be one of those farmers that says, why do we need more internet? He has iPads in every one of his pieces of machinery that I don't know what they all do. I mean, I could ask him, but there's tons of different things that they do. I'm like, why do you need another iPad? He's like, uh, he gets, I don't know, but we, we have tons of technology. I think that it's just a vital part. If it's already in our agriculture, the guys who you would think in the last, my dad like has internet and, and has iPads. Like he, I would have never guessed that he, he kept his money in a a sock drawer for a long time as a child. My dad had his, he was like, I don't trust the banks, but we're there now. That's where we are. This is the age we live in. Elsie, you work firsthand with kids and and kids that are coming up in a COVID age. and, And this is a strange time to be anybody in America right now, but certainly a strange time to be a kid. My wife and I talk all the time. We're glad that our oldest is only two and a half and probably won't have any memory of this. But when you talk to kids and families that are going through this right now, do you see this having a long-term impact or are kids really more resilient than we give them credit for? I hope there's some resilience there, but I think it depends on how much longer this is going to last. Will this be a memory stamped in their minds for the rest of their life? Yes. I mean, I talked to my my little sister can remember 9-11. It was something stamped. We live in Texas. We weren't directly affected by 9-11, but it's something that's stamped in her mind. And these kids were directly affected. Not everyone lives in the household that, that my children live in. This has been really taxing on our CPS and domestic abuse and child abuse areas in our community and and definitely in Dallas County. So I feel like it just depends on the kid and what household they live in, one. But two, I I think that the longer that we stay in this state, the longer those lasting effects will be. As an educator, that's my opinion. And unfortunately, and I'm very aware of it because my wife was a, a middle school and a high school counselor, oftentimes educators, they're the first one to detect a kid that's being abused or a kid that is hungry or a kid that something is going wrong at home. And this pandemic, when you're separated from your kids, that's really hard to do, isn't it? It has been. That's probably, that's kept me up a few nights, kept me up a few nights. And that was the first thing I, opening car doors is one of my favorite, favorite responsibilities to do is being there to open the door and be the first face they see. And that was, I mean, I went to my office after Carline and I, may have had a few tears because it was just like exactly as an educator what you needed, but seeing, okay, they're here and they're safe. That was a, a big a big moment yesterday. I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. So thank you for that. I'm going to ask one last question. And, and uh, first of all, let me thank you for your, your participation in Common Ground. What would you tell moms, the counterpart moms that don't live on farms and ranches, don't live in rural America, what would you tell them about what it is you as a mom and as an educator, as a farmer, what would you tell them about what's going on uh, on the farm and in rural America with COVID from mom to mom? Mom to mom, I think I would tell them, take this time and do what I did. I slowed down. It's okay. You think as a farm wife and someone who lives in rural America, everything goes slow. But sometimes we have just as busy lives, um, sometimes maybe busier. And I think that it's okay to take the time to slow down, enjoy the backyard view, and laughter with your kids. It's that's Yes, it's been a stressful time. Yes, it's been hard. No, the internet doesn't always work. But in those moments, take the time to, to enjoy watching your children grow 
That's, I mean, that's why you brought kids into this world is, is to create beautiful little humans. And so take the time to enjoy them. Well, great. Thank you for that. Thank you for what you do as an educator, uh, what you do in Common Ground and, and all the other things that you do. We really appreciate you being on. And, and I hope that the next time you and I talk, which I hope is soon, that there's a little bit better internet access at your farm and at your house and at your school and uh, that things are, are a little closer back to normal. So Elsie Weitzel, mom, educator, farm wife, Common Ground volunteer, thank you so much for, for all that you do. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Wherever John May Roam. I'm John Doggett, and I am the CEO of the National Corn Growers Association. Thank you for listening. That is going to wrap up this edition of Wherever John May Roam, the National Corn Growers Association podcast. New episodes arrive monthly, so make sure you subscribe in your favorite app and join us again soon. Visit ncga.com to learn more or sign up for the association's email newsletter. Wherever John May Roam is brought to you by the National Corn Growers Association and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. For the National Corn Growers Association, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.